0: As we continue in our series of Best of Bad Crypto podcast shows, this perhaps is the most relevant interview that you could go back and listen to out of all the ones that we've done. The author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, which of course exposes the scam that is the Federal Reserve Bank, G. Edward Griffin was our guest on episode number 351, December 29th, 2019. I I love this dude. We need to get him back on, I think, for an update. But how relevant is the content of this episode to the here and now?
1: Well, we fought to get this guy on the show, right? Like this guy, we met this guy also at Aspen Institute and uh, love the guy. And, you know, if you know his history, you know, he, he, has, he, he actually brought to the forefront this guy, Yuri Breznikov, and, or Breznikov, Breznikov, I don't know, Bre, Yuri something. And he talked about how the communists are going to work to subvert America over time. And it's going to take about two and a half, three generations to do it. And this interview, really, he, he talks about where we've been, where we're going, why we're in this shithole right now. And uh, this is this is fascinating
0: stuff. And I guess I didn't mention this before. In some of these best ofs, there might be ads for offers that are no longer relevant. And I'm not editing them out. So if like there's an eToro ad or something in there, ignore it. You can't get your fifty dollars or
1: something in there. Yeah.
0: You know, this is this is the show in its entirety, unedified from December twenty nineteen. G. Edward Griffin. Buckle in. This is going to be a great ride. You've heard of Dracula, who comes in the night to suck the blood of innocence so that he might live. You've heard of the Phantom of the Opera, who will stop at nothing to keep captive his beloved Christine. And you've heard of the Mummy, who's been wrapped up so long, he's just in a bad mood. And he's often mistaken for Billy Zane. The list of monsters and evildoers goes on. And while these fiends are fictional, there's one that's more insidious than all of these and is very Real. It's the creature from Jekyll Island, a beast so terrifying and horrible that it affects you, me, and the American economy every day. As named by author and speaker G. Edward Griffin, the Federal Reserve Bank is the monster that was born off the coast of Georgia and today remains a mystery to most Americans. Well, we are super pleased today to bring a legendary interview with G. Edward Griffin, where we discuss the origins of the Fed how the money supply works, and how cryptocurrency can play an essential role in bringing about economic freedom for all. One of the most important shows we've ever done, you won't want to miss a beat of episode number 351 of this legend, wait for it, Dairy episode number 351, wait for it, of the Bad Crypto Podcast. Five, four, three, two, one, two. Who's bad? Greetings, friends. This is an incredible episode of the Bad Crypto Podcast. We have for you and along for the ride are myself, Mr. Joel Kahn, and my
1: compatriot, comrade, brother-in-arms, Mr. Travis Wright. Welcome, everyone. Now, this is, I would say this right here, we've had conversations since we've done this interview. I think this might might be the best interview that we've done, maybe the most important interview that we've done out of all of the episodes that we've done.
0: Yeah, there's, this, is, this stuff here is really tight, gang. So we're not going to keep you waiting here very long. We want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor because they make this show possible and they could make trading your cryptos easy, possible transparent with low fees. I'm talking, of course, about eToro. You can download the eToro app in the eToro wallet for iOS and for Android from the respective stores where you would download such things. And boom, you have access to the top cryptos. And get this, still, for a limited time, you can open up a new account with eToro, deposit, fund the account with $50 or more in whatever your currency is. And if you are in the United States of America, and you open a position in any of the cryptos that eToro makes available of $50 or more, we here at the Bad Crypto Podcast, well, we want to send you $25 in Bitcoin. That is an instant 50% increase. You invest 50 bucks and now you've got 75. You just got to go through the process we've got on the website. It's at badco.in forward slash eToro again build your perfect portfolio with just a few taps of your smartphone or clicks on your computer badco.in forward slash eToro and now you
1: have 70 and now it's 65 <laughs> and now it's 48 <laughs> and now it's <laughs>
0: <five>. <laughs> unless of course the bull run happens in which case Yeah. You know, think about it this way, Travis. Okay. So, you know, as of this recording right now, Bitcoin's around 7,000 or so. So let's say you invest $50. If Bitcoin hits the all-time high again, that $50 becomes about 150 and the 25 on top of it. So now your $50 investment with the $25 bonus from us becomes $225.
1: Are you a financial advisor?
0: I'm not, but you know, a lot just of people out there.
1: He's doing some math, right? There, I'm
0: just right? doing. I'm just doing math. Mm-hmm. That's
1: good. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Speaking of math, and speaking of crypto, and speaking of fiat currency, let's get to this interview right here. This right here is going to be one. It's a little bit longer than usual, but I would say that if you hold it, plus this, it'll be worth three and a half times the value of the time you listen to it by the time you listen to it. This is G. Edward Griffin.
0: And we are privileged now to go down the rabbit hole with a man who has been bringing others down the rabbit hole of the mystery of the financial systems of the world for many decades now. He, uh, his name is G. Edward Griffin, but his friends call him Ed and uh he's been doing this stuff for quite a while he he was a writer for Curtis LeMay he was a vice presidential running mate for George Wallace back in 1968 and then he started writing and making documentary style videos about topics such as the ones that have been covered in his best selling book The Creature from Jekyll Island you've Travis has referred to this book many times and it is uh a, reveals the mystery of the so-called Federal Reserve. He's here with us now to spin yarns and tell tall tales of the world financial
2: elite. Mr. G. Edward Griffin, welcome to Bad Crypto. (laughs) Well, thank you for inviting me. Going to spin some tall tales. All right. I like the sound of that. You've actually
0: covered a lot of topics over the years. You know, your bio says you've written about uh, the the truth about cancer and the industry, uh, you know, surrounding that. The historical authenticity of Noah's Ark, the Supreme Court of the U.S., terrorism, foreign policy, and the Federal Reserve. You just you've dove down a lot of rabbit holes
2: in your career. <laughs> I certainly yeah. have. I'm surprised I ever climbed out again.
0: <laughs> yeah, because there's some people when you start telling their secrets they don't like that they don't want to for you to bring out into the light that which they intend to keep in the dark
2: that is so true yes well i've got some i've got a few uh, people on the list like that i mean i've taken on the international banking cartel i've taken on the international pharmaceutical cartel how's that for two starts
0: that's cojones Mm -hmm. right as far (laughs) as i'm
1: concerned
2: yeah when he walks it
1: (laughs) clanks i'm pretty sure (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's, 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 it's completely fascinating to me. So if folks do not know the story of, you know, the, the creature from Jekyll Island. It's like about a 600 page book. It goes in, it talks about, you know, this, this meeting that had happened back in 1910 of these very influential people and how they decided they were going to create a new ba- central banking system, put it in place, implement the IRS system. And here we are over 100 years later. Now, what led you down that rabbit hole to explore that? So I, as, I, as I find that completely fascinating, how did you say, you know what, I I, I want to understand how this whole
2: system works? Well, that's that's a very long and a rather quite boring story, uh, but I'll try and make it uh, short and boring. How's that? <laughs> Maybe throw in
0: a few, you know, kung fu moves. And <laughs> yeah, stuff there you and we'll, go. You know, put some action yeah.
2: Well, actually actually what I said is true. It is a boring story because it's all about my journey and my journey is a lot like everyone's. I I had no idea where I was going to end up. I started in one direction and end up ended up someplace entirely different. So that's the story of mankind, I guess. But that certainly was how I got to where I am today. We go way back to the uh, middle of the 19 19- you know, 60s, I guess, or late 60s, early 70s. And I had decided at this point to go into business on my own. And uh, I opened up a little um, one tank uh, film production company, because that's what I knew how to do. I studied, you know, film production and communications in school. So I thought that's what I'm going to do. Skip over a lot of um, holes that I stumbled into along the way. But finally, it came to the point where I had decided to do a a very low budget film on the topic of inflation. I thought that was interesting. I knew that I didn't know much about inflation except that the common knowledge must be wrong. The common knowledge about inflation that it was somebody else's fault. I mean, the farmers would say, well, the reason, the reason prices are so high is because we sell our products to the distributors and the markets and they have a huge markup on it and said so they're the ones that are causing inflation. Of course, the markets and distributors would say no. The farmers are making too much money on it, and then somebody would point to the unions. They were well, the unions are charging too much money to drive the trucks. This is their fault. And the unions would say no, it's the capitalists. And of course, the Marxists got into this. There's always somebody else's fault for raising prices and gouging the market. And I thought this doesn't make sense. And I, I'm going to do a, a research on it. Well, it doesn't take long if you are serious about that. And I. I went and checked out a lot of books at the library and I read them and it didn't take long before I realized that the engine of inflation was something called the federal reserve system. I'd never heard of it before. Well, I had, I probably read about it in school and then conveniently forgot about it because it didn't mean anything to me. I always Mm -hmm. thought the federal reserve was a government agency and that was the impression I got in school and that they were the good guys. They were there to stabilize the economy, And, uh, you know, preserve the purchasing power of the dollar and all those good things. So I didn't pay much attention to it, except to be thankful in my nightly prayers that we had it, you know, that kind of a thing. But I Mm -hmm. found out that, wait a minute, wait a minute, something was different. And the books and the people, the whistleblowers and all that were saying, "Uh uh-uh, that's not the way it is, folks. They were saying that the, the, uh, the Federal Reserve was a banking cartel. A cartel? What do you mean a cartel? What is that? I wasn't even sure what that word meant. Had to go back and say, oh, cartel. That's a group of privately owned companies, not a government agency, a group of private companies all in the same field who decide to quit competing with each other so that they can come to agreements and set prices and profit margins and policies. And they can gouge the public, and the public has no place else to go because it's like a shared monopoly in the market. They just can't. Well, anyway, I got to that stage and then. I never produced the film. Something else came up, something that was a little easier to research than that. I realized this was a huge can of worms. So something else came up and the books were, I mean, all the stuff, my papers and books were put away in a a big box in the back of that closet someplace. And some years later, some literally some little old ladies in Pasadena, we've heard about them. They were real. Uh, Some little old ladies in Pasadena called me. They heard I was giving speeches on this, that, and the other thing and they asked me if I would like to address their um, their little study group that they had in Pasadena, of course. And their study group was about um, taxes. And they said, would you like to talk about taxes? And I said, well, I don't know much about taxes, except that they're too high, and I'm a ginum, But What else can I say? And I said, but I do know something about a hidden tax. And, of course, the light bulb went off, and they mm-hmm. said, what do you mean a hidden tax? I said, well... I could come and talk to you about a hidden tax. It's much bigger than any tax that you've been talking about. Of course, I was talking about inflation, but they didn't Mm -hmm. know that. And, uh, oh, yeah, well, so that was my my call. Uh, So I went and I got my box out, and I thumbed through all these books. This was some years later, by the way. This was much later. We'd say late
1: 80s, mid-80s sometime? Well, let me think. Because the book came out in
2: 1994, correct? Yeah, this would be uh, – the mid, the mid eighties. Yes. Okay. So, uh, and I went and I reread some of this stuff and by this time I had learned a lot along the road and some of the things that I didn't understand the first time through snapped into focus. I thought, Oh my gosh, this is a, this is a profoundly deep rabbit hole as you call it. This, I didn't catch this the first time through. And I realized that it was an extremely important topic because it affected all aspects of our lives. And uh, so I I spent a little time thumbing through and making notes, and I prepared a speech for these ladies. And it was a small group, uh, probably about 40 people in their living room. But it was my chance to review and put something together with an an opening, a middle, and an ending. And in that process, I became aware that there was a story here. So I gave my speech. And the the nice ladies came up to me afterwards, and they were very complimentary. They said, "Oh, this is wonderful. You want you want to go on the road with this presentation?" Well, you never you never say that to a, a young guy that wants to go on the road with a presentation because that's what I did. I thought, "Oh, well, they liked it," <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I started to produce a series of one-day seminars. I called it the Crash Course on Money, and they were. I would say wildly successful. A lot of people came out to hear my seminars and I traveled all around the United States for about a year, maybe a year and a half. And I was packing them in and I thought I was doing a good job, but I became very dissatisfied or rather nervous because at the end of most of my presentations, there would be somebody that would come up and say, well, Mr. Griffin, this is all very startling. And, and I believe that what you're saying is true. And now I understand blah, blah, but what do you recommend I do to protect myself? My husband, my husband died, left a small uh, estate. And I I don't want to, uh, I don't want to squander it. What would you recommend I do? Should I buy an apartment house? Should I get gold or silver? Should I go into cash? Or what should I do? And, I had to face myself in the mirror. I hadn't the foggiest idea of mm. what to say to these people. I was a fraud. Yes, I knew about the Federal Reserve, but the real world of investments, I knew nothing about that, and people wanted that information. Mm. So I canceled the, uh, the series, the speeches, and I decided to go back to school. I really did. I surprised myself. Uh, I wanted to uh, learn about the real markets, and so I enrolled in something called the College for Financial Planning. It's a correspondence course, but it's a mm. very highly esteemed course. They, uh, they issue certificates like a CPA. This was a CFP certified financial planner. And, uh, it was a long, and this is,
1: so you're in your fifties at this point. So you're like well, mid fifties yeah. or so. Yeah. You know? And you're yeah, like, I'm gonna go back well, to school. See, that's great. That's like <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield did, right? <laughs> yeah, but,
2: <laughs> but he don't get no respect. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, I decided that I'd go back to school and I got my CFP designation. And I I really learned a lot. It's not that I wanted to be a financial planner. I just wanted to learn about the real markets. So then I realized that the story I was sitting on was one of the biggest stories that you could possibly imagine. I decided then to write a book. That was the beginning of it. So it was about a seven-year journey from that point for me to gather all this stuff that I knew, but I didn't know all about it. I didn't know enough about it to offer myself as some kind of a half-baked expert, you know, to write a book, you stick yourself out. And I thought when I published the book, boy, am I going to get splattered. I was just I, I dreaded the day that some college professor would read my book and expose me as the uh uh of the uh Uh, The imbecile that I was, you know, (laughs) because this was not my field. And, well, it never happened. Uh, That's another story. I'll come back to that in a minute. So, anyway, I published the book, and that's how it happened. It was just a journey of one step leading to the other. And if I had known how long the journey was and how many challenges there were and how many mysterious things and how many doors opened up into other rooms that had doors that opened up into still other rooms, it's a huge topic. Money flows everywhere. And uh, it's at the heart of just about everything that we're, it's important in our lives. I, I don't think known, that's
0: boring at all. I think that that's but, great, and I want a little G. Edward Griffin action figure now, who's like taking on the world financial system.
2: Oh, don't forget to get the bobblehead going on. Right. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. Let, let's talk about the actual content then
0: of the Creature from Jekyll Island. Obviously, it's a it is a long book. There's a, you have many words in it, but if you were to sum up, if you know, if you have just a few minutes with somebody who. Thinks like the majority of Americans that the Federal Reserve is a government agency. How would you, in just a few minutes, persuade them that their worldview is upside down?
2: Well, I would ask him to call the Federal Reserve and ask.
0: <laughs> Boom! He did it in less than one in a, in a sentence.
2: Travis. Because they'll explain it. I mean, they they've written on it. Their books, pamphlets. It's very clear. You don't have. It's not a mystery. They don't hide that fact. It's just that they don't encourage people to understand it.
0: Why is Uh, that?
2: Well, because thinking that the Federal Reserve is a government agency creates the false uh, comfort that, well, it's in good hands. I mean, we elect our elected representatives. We have the president. He appoints the chairman of the board, all these things. Therefore, we, the people of America, have control over it. And certainly it must be in our interest because we own it. We control it.
0: I mean, here it is. I've got a a dollar bill here in my hands, and on the top of it, it says, Federal Reserve Note, the United States of America. Does mm -hmm. that not give every indication that this is an official uh, currency for our government?
2: Well, it is an official currency for our government, but the government doesn't create it nor control it. The, and so that's the, if you understand what happened back in the beginning, and if you, you had the courage to read the Federal Reserve Act, you talk about boring, but it's all in there. And what they did is they just, the United States Congress passed a law, which in essence was a cartel agreement. That's another story how that cartel agreement or the Federal Reserve Act came into being. The, let me digress for just a moment. The reason I called my book The Creature from Jekyll Island is because the Federal Reserve System was created on Jekyll Island, which is a real island off the coast of Georgia. And it was done, the the plan was put together in 1910, and it was passed into law in 1913. And what they did is uh, they created on that island the outline of a cartel agreement for all the major banks in the United States to come together and, and share of the market and control the market to their advantage. But they the reason they were on Jekyll Island is because they wanted to do this in secret. If the word had leaked out that the Federal Reserve Act, which was what advertised to the voters and to Congress too in some ways, it was advertised as a means of controlling the banks. Because back in 1910 there was a lot of concern about the banks, the big, bad banks, they call it the, you know, the, the banking cartel. They didn't call it cartel in those days, but uh, they, they were concerned about the banks and um, they wanted legislation. They wanted their government to control those banks. And so the, the banks said, hey guys, are we gonna sit around and wait for some jerk in Congress to come up with a law that's going to control our business? No, that'd be stupid. Let us do it. We'll draft the law to control the banks but we don't want anyone to know that we wrote it because then the the cat would be out of the bag. So they went to Jekyll Island in the privacy of this Jekyll Island club, which was owned by all the big, billionaires on Wall Street.
1: And they all snuck there too, where they were all like undercover and like taking trains on different names. And they were all converging into this place under complete anonymity. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That was what caught my attention. One of the things Mm. caught my attention in the beginning, I realized that that journey to Jackal Island was done under conditions of great secrecy. In fact, in my view, I don't think many wars of history were plotted under conditions of greater secrecy than that, yet they just knew it must not be discovered that they were writing the Federal Reserve Act because then nobody would, they would see what it was. They would see that it was a fraud. So we get back to the question of, you know, how do you explain this to somebody? They have to know a little bit of history, but it's easy to summarize it. Somebody asked me, what is the Federal Reserve System? And you've got, you know, 30 seconds to explain it. I can say, well, I don't need 30 seconds. I I can do it in four. And they look at me rather surprised. And I say, okay, here it is. The Federal Reserve System is a scam. Any questions? And that's it. But that now.
0: Two <laughs> seconds. Well done. Two, you just well, shaved two, your yeah. time.
2: Yeah. And you could even shave it further by leaving the word Federal Reserve off and just say, it's a scam. Now you got three words. So it, and, but of course, that leaves a lot to be explained as to, well, what scam and how does it work? And how do you know? things like that. Well, then you wind up with a 600-page book to fill in the blank spots. But that's really it. It's as simple as that. And one of the problems that I and many people have had in understanding the Federal Reserve is because we're Boy Scouts. You know, We believe that everybody is honest and upfront. And we couldn't imagine that anything like the Federal Reserve system, which is, has its big building in Washington, D.C., and is so revered, and is taught in our schools as the great defender of the economy for the American people. We couldn't believe that that could be anything close to a scam. How would that ever happen? Impossible. So we weren't able to see it. But finally, when you get the history and you read the papers of the people who did this, you realize that, by golly, they did create a scam, and they knew it, and they talked about it. They wrote papers on it they gave speeches on it they described it they plotted it's in the record and then you think oh my gosh where have i been all of my life that's this Mm. kind of the that's the pattern that or the path that most people take on this topic like i did i started in totally as an unbeliever no it couldn't be a scam not at all it was just complicated and i was too stupid to understand it that's how i thought it was and then i realized when i started reading the words of these people that created it themselves about issues, about how do we keep this from being known? How do we do this so it appears to be something which it isn't? And they talked about that, and I thought, hmm, I better go open my eyes and take a little uh, second look at this. So anyway, I'm off the track. Uh, How would I explain it to uh, the average person? I would just say it's it's a means by which the banking cartel, the banking industry formed a cartel So they could dominate the market of money and banking and they could write their own rules and regulations. They would give it to Congress. Congress would pass it as a law. And so it was, since it's a law, now people think it's a government agency, but it's no, it's it's not a government agency. It was just made legal by a law. And so now Congress went one step further. Not only did they allow the bank to regulate the banks to regulate their own industry, but, to their amazement, Woodrow Wilson and, and the whole Congress gave the Federal Reserve System the power to create the nation's money supply. That was Those are two separate issues. How do you regulate your own industry? But the other one was to take your constitutional right to issue money and transfer it to a private group of people. And they did that, and nobody questioned it. Today, nobody questions it. How can Congress delegate its constitutional authority to issue the and control the, the quality and the quantity of money? But they did. And nobody, even to this day, most people don't know it. And if you ask most college professors on banking and money, they say, huh, what are you talking about? But that is exactly what happened.
1: Yeah. I want to talk about the education system in a little bit, but I want to follow. I want to follow that up because that's what really woke me up to the world. I, I learned about this in the year 2000, and then once I wait a second. No, the do, the money is all backed by gold. What do you mean? It's oh, they can create paper money out of thin air, and and this and this fractional reserve banking thing, which was such a crazy thing for me to wrap my brain around. I was like, if I had deposit a million dollars in my bank now, the bank can. De- can loan out $10 million money that doesn't even exist and then request interest back on this money that never even existed before they created it out of thin air. Like the whole system to me. And then I started realizing, wait a second, there are so many things that we think we know that are not the way they are. And it's just such a, like this right here was the gateway drug really for me to understand really more so of how the world works. And I think that it's very important I think a lot of people that are in the cryptocurrency space are libertarians and they, you know, they've, they've done research. They understand most people have never even heard the term fiat currency. That's not a term that is in the, in the common vernacular of most world citizens, right? Like paper money out of thin air. It was just, it's just unbelievable. Right. I want to ask you about, I want, cause I want our, uh, I want our audience to understand that even today, who owns the Federal Reserve Bank? There's these families. There's X amount of these that's a trust, right? And then the IRS gets paid taxes, and that goes back to the trust of the Federal Reserve. <laughs> how, how does that work? Because I, I I don't even know that I have a full grasp on it, but I think it's very important for people to understand where the profits are going. And then I have a point after that. After you explain this, I have a point.
2: Well, you do have a good point. And, but the question of who owns the Federal Reserve is a tricky one because um, – There are different definitions of the word own, ownership. Um, And so you have to choose one. Most people think that if you hold, first of all, back off, the Federal Reserve is a corporation. Okay, that's what it is. It's legally a corporation, and it was... Which is why there's a chairman, right? There's a chairman, yes. And unlike most corporations, which are created by states, this one was created by Congress, so the federal government created this corporation. So it's a federal, federally created corporation, but still is a corporation. And with most corporations, you would assume that the people who own the stock certificates own the corporation. Why? Because they can vote. The, the owners of the stock can vote the uh, chairman out. They can vote the uh, boards of directors and so forth. And in that way, they can change their leadership if they wish. And also the people who own the stock, really own it. The test of ownership is what you can do with it. If you own something, you can sell it or you can give it away. And you start looking at it. And when you read the Federal Reserve Act, you realize that the primary functions of ownership are denied to the stockholders. Stockholders cannot sell their stock. Stockholders are the banks. So you could start to say, well, the banks own it because they own the stock. Now, the original issue of the Federal Reserve did have some people private people who own stock in the formation stage. And you can find that uh, in the pages of the New York Times back in 1910. They listed some of these people that actually held stock. There have been changes since then. And uh, now, as far as we can tell on the outside, looking in, uh, all the stock is owned by the member banks. Okay, but the member banks cannot sell their stock. They can't give it away. And then they don't even have voting power. They, they cannot vote for uh, the the chairman of the Federal Reserve System and so forth. So it's it's kind of a facade in a sense of ownership. The true test of ownership always is not who holds a piece of paper, but who controls the item. I mean, you can own a piece of paper that says that car is yours. But if somebody says you can't drive the car, you can't drive the car because for whatever reason, you didn't pay a license fee, let's say. Then you don't, obviously you don't own the car if somebody else can tell you that you can't use it. So the test of ownership is control. A bureaucrat in Washington or a state can have a limousine assigned to him or her and he picks up the phone and the limousine shows up. He has a driver. He doesn't own that car, but he totally controls it. That is ownership in, in my sense and in most people's sense. Whoever controls the piece of property owns it. Now, with that understanding, the owners, the true owners of the Federal Reserve System are the ones who control it. And that would be the largest banks in the United States. Those are the owners. And, and they control it. They select... Uh, the list of names that are submitted to the president from which he must choose a a chairman. The president of the United States technically chooses the chairman of the Federal Reserve, but where does he get the list? Nobody ever asks that. It's a fact that the presidents who make these appointments don't even know these people that they appoint. You're not going to find their names in their private address books. They've never met these people in most cases. So they're following the advice and directions of who, They're who, who tells the president what names to choose from, maybe not which name to choose, but which ones to choose from, a list. And that list always, of course, is made up of people who are very friendly to the banking cartel, either members of it or very close to it. There are never anybody on these lists who would be hostile to the policies of the banks, never. So the president chooses from a list that's provided to him by his biggest donors, the biggest donors are the banks and the corporations which they control. So the president does not choose the chairman of the Federal Reserve in a real sense. What actually happens is that the Federal Reserve chooses the president because they're the ones that provide the money that make it possible for a candidate to win elections. They control the media and they control you know, a lot of things that will determine how the American people vote. It's it's a it's a convoluted thing, and it's not an easy easy answer, an easy question to answer, because most people keep thinking of who owns the stock certificates, and there's always this mm-hmm. hidden there's always this hidden question of well, do the Rothschild hold some hidden stock over in Europe, and do other banks in Europe, and, mm-hmm. and you know that wouldn't surprise me, but if they do, it's not significant. Because the controllers of the Federal Reserve are the true owners, and those are the biggest banks in the United mm-hmm. States. Now, who owns those banks? There's another question. You, in most of these big banks, you can't find out who owns them. They, too, if they have stocks, often are held in street names. We don't know who the true holders of yeah. those. Um, but aren't the they, like, are.
1: descendants, and there's, like, a trust of descendants of those who were at Jekyll Island who helped create this? Like – you know, JP Morgan and his bank, Chase, and the Rockefeller banks that they've owned and controlled, and mm. Jacob Schiff and the banks, and you know, all those people that were there creating it, how are their families still benefiting from that today?
2: Because <laughs> well, they own the banks, because they're the ones that own the banks now, or what? Well, they're the ones that control the banks, and therefore they do own the banks. Yeah, of course. If, if you can determine there you go. Uh, you know, who is going to be a, a appointed elected as the president of a bank or if you if you are buddies with all of the uh people on the board of directors and you have this Mm -hmm. interlock and you find the same board of directors on i mean the same people on the board of directors of different banks and also the biggest largest corporations and the media companies that you if you look at an interlocking chart i've seen a few of them it's it's a maze it looks like a like a spider web but if you really get down and look at the, the the lines you'll see that these lines connect certain very important people to many different major corporations in the United yes. States. So it's an that
1: is such a, that's a, such a key point there. I've seen that there's like the, the committee of 300 or whatever. There are these people that are on the board of all of these corporations mm-hmm. and, and, and they're the ones that really control the corporations, control the banks, control the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that mechanism I I want to ask this about the debt, because there's this mechanism here that ties all that together. So here's the Fed, but then also that was created was the IRS at the same time. And so now, you know, for some odd reason, America's 21 trillion plus dollars in debt. We can print hundred dollar bills for six cents, right? So if you do the math, there's no way that we should be broke if you can create a hundred dollar bill for six cents. But the way that debt happens is, what, how, the, the debt, and then, then we pay our, then the, then the people pay the IRS, and then the IRS pays the Federal Reserve Bank back for the debts or whatever, and then that money goes back to the people who control the banks? Is that, is that's kind of how I understand it?
2: Well, I certainly have run across that theory, and I, I'm not challenging it. I just have never gotten that deep into it uh, on the tax side. Um, as I see it, the tax system in America is not so much for revenue. In fact, the bankers themselves have written papers on this. There was a guy whose name I can't remember now, but he's in my book. Uh, maybe I'll think of it. But he was one of the, um, not only a, a member of the board of a, of one of the um, regional banks of the Federal Reserve System, but... Uh, his name was Hummel or something like that. But he actually was the person who created the federal withholding tax. He was also had a position in the government. And he uh, wrote a paper, which I came across, and I quoted him in my book. And he said something like this. He said, now that we have the Federal Reserve System, and he didn't go on to explain what that meant, but we understand that. Now that we have a means of creating money ourselves, creating money, the purpose of tax has become very narrow. We don't even need the tax, is basically what he says. We can fund everything we want to do simply by creating the money through the Federal Reserve System. Mm. But then he said, we still need the tax primarily as a social mechanism, as a means of engineering society to move money from one group to another, to reward our friends and punish our enemies, to redistribute wealth, to encourage one sector of the economy over the other. In other words, as a means of control, that's what they have the taxes for. So when I hear people concerned about where are the taxes going, well, that's important to know, I I admit that. But the point is that all of the taxes are meant as a mechanism of control. What more do we need to know? And yes, that was designed by the same people who created the Federal Reserve System. That is insidious. I mean, just to
0: hear you say that is it's chilling and, you know, okay. So you're more seasoned than we, you've been around for a bit and you've seen the effects of inflation, you know, more than we have, you know, we all see the charts of what the dollar could buy 50 years ago versus what it could buy now. And I'm wondering when you think back to being a a wee lad, you know, you would go to, to buy a You know, a meal, just maybe a few items. Like, what do you remember spending to get typical things that we buy today?
2: (laughs) That's funny because I often think about that as a kid across from the grade school where I, the first grade school where I went, there was a little candy store. It was actually in the basement or half basement just across the street from the school. And you know you go down about 10 stairs and the windows were above ground, but most of the shop was below ground. And it was a candy store. And the greatest joy for most of us was to stop in the candy store and for a penny, come out with a big, long strip of paper with little gummy drops glued to it. You know, a penny, you get a lot of candy. like. And for two or three cents, you could get a candy bar. Two cents, a great candy bar, like a Mars bar or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I've often thought about that. There's a song that came out some years ago with something like Penny, candy, candy for a penny. It takes much more than a penny now.
0: So much <laughs> but more.
2: So much more. So yeah. let's
0: let's um then on that uh line of thinking, that candy bar today, you know, a buck, buck yeah. fifty, mm-hmm. whatever. Tie that into the printing of money and how that happens because we just accept, oh, things get more expensive over time. But there is a financial mechanism that causes that to take place.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that's it. That's the, what they call inflation, which I think is probably not a good descriptive because the it's true that the money supply inflates. And so they think, well, the prices are going up. But in reality, the prices don't go up it's just that the value of the penny goes down or the value of the dollar goes down and why the value of a unit of the currency goes down is because of its quantity in relationship to the quantity of goods and services out there that are bidding for it and you can just imagine if you're playing a game of monopoly you know everybody gets a certain amount of money at the beginning of the game and so the prices are pretty well established by there's the limited of the real estate on the board and there's the limit of the money. And so you put one against the other, you know that all of the real estate on the board has to equal approximately the value of all the money that's available for it. Well, if somebody were to discover an, a second box of Monopoly in the closet, and they oh look, I found another box of Monopoly, and look at all this money that's in it, and they get the money out and redistribute it among everybody. Well, what happens to the prices on the on Boardwalk or and Marvin's Gardens? Well, it just doubles because There's a it,
0: word for that, right? I think it's called cheating.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, of course it's cheating. It's uh, fraudulent. It's a scam. Let's go go back to that (laughs) word. So it's a simple thing to understand. I think most great kids can understand it. But unfortunately, by the time some of them get to be college professors, they can't figure it out because they got to figure out that, well, it's a means of stabilizing the economy and it's a good thing, blah, blah, blah. And they don't really understand that inflation is just simply a, a relationship between the quantity of money and the quantity of goods and services. So as long as the quantity of money is expanding at approximately the same rate as the goods and services in a society, then the purchasing power of the money remains stable. But if the, if the money starts to expand at a rate faster than goods and services, then all of a sudden there's more bidding power against it and prices are bid up and uh, prices go up because the value of, that purchase of the unit of the money goes down. And throughout history, the only thing that has ever been discovered through trial and error that stabilizes the purchasing power of money is a monetary system that's based on something that requires human effort to produce. Because human effort is the common denominator between goods and services and on the one side and money on the other. If you don't hu- have human effort on both sides of the equation, now you don't, you don't have a real equation. It's not a mathematical equation, it's a social equation. So as long as money was based on something that took human effort to produce, the purchasing power of that money remained stable over long periods of time. Well, gold and silver, of course, is always the one or the other that societies have voluntarily chosen. Uh, without government intervention or coercion, given freedom of choice, they may try something and try something else, but that didn't work as well as gold and silver. So historically, every instance is that after time, societies that have tried different things for money reverted back to using gold or silver because it takes a lot of human effort to produce gold and silver in a form that it can be exchanged. That's one of the reasons that we maybe we'll talk about cryptos in a minute, that's one of the differences between cryptocurrencies and uh, money that does, um, requires human effort to produce. So that's an important part of the equation because if you remove the human effort challenge from money, then you, all you have is just the goodwill or the wisdom, of the, uh, the benevolence of the people making the decisions as to how much money to have. And if there's one thing you can count on, if you give, if you give a group of people the power to create nothing to create money out of nothing, they're going to abuse that power sooner or later and they're going to run away with the scam that we're talking about. They'll create it because it's to their advantage to do so. And I don't care how good they are when they start off, they're going to be corrupted by it. And if they're not corrupted by it, eventually they will die and be replaced by someone who will be corrupted by it. It's just as sure as shooting. any monetary system Mm -hmm. that is like that is going to blow up.
0: Travis reminds me of the ICO phase, right? We saw a lot of people, Printing money in the form of cryptocurrency out of thin air—some of them legitimately, and some of them just for the purpose of saying, "Hey, we think we can get away with this."
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. and they did many of them.
1: Many of them did. Now, what do you think about the mechanisms within cryptocurrencies? So, while we're here, and and I, I just do have a couple of questions about about education and and your interview with Yuri Bresmanoff in a bit, but I want to talk about crypto because we're in a perfect time for that now like so you you understand the mechanisms of it and how it's maybe deflationary in nature because there's a limited supply, like I guess we'll just start with Bitcoin. You know what is your thoughts around Bitcoin as a currency? Do you think that there's a chance that Bitcoin could become a world reserve currency down the road
2: well those are two uh, interesting points. Let's start with the issue of limited supply. I would like to challenge that uh, notion to me the amount of cryptos that can be created is infinite. And we've already seen, you know, the forks and, and new cryptos coming online. Any one cryptocurrency, yes, might be limited by its algorithms. But that's not the world we're moving into. The world we're moving into is uh, one in which all of them will be exchanged. And be you can move from one to the other and you can have many of them. And when you put them all together, there's an infinite supply of money. So the idea that cryptocurrency is limited in quantity, I think, is a myth because that's not the way it is. It has unlimited ceilings to it, which is an interesting fact in itself. But um, then we get back to the other thing, which is: do, do the banks really and the governments really hate or fear cryptocurrencies? And the answer is obviously no, because they're in the forefront now of developing it. They want to control it. Uh, the the banks, in particular have dreamed for centuries of a cashless society. And cryptos are the wet dream of these people. This is exactly what they have dreamed about and wanted for so long. And they can hardly wait to have one that's universal, that they can control. This is the key that they can control and they they're confident that they can. And I'm not so confident that they cannot. I, I think that the way things are evolving uh, with technology and with the political scene and all of that, I think that their intention of controlling cryptocurrencies is probably well-founded.
1: Mm. Well, it's, it, it is definitely an interesting thing. Cause I mean, we don't know who cre- who Satoshi Nakamoto is the person who created it. I've read that, in the 90s there was a document by the nsa about creating cryptography and money and utilizing that together and so i've always had questions about that and you know the fact that you know more and more governments are starting to you know the chinese are creating the blockchain it's going to be a, a gold based yuan right so then there so some of these governments are creating these sovereign sovereign currencies as well we all have a smartphone in our pocket, which makes it easy to use cryptocurrency, right? So, but in a world where if there's no electricity, then crypto sure is very difficult, right? If, if, if like something happens to our electric grid or whatever. So it's, a, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting sort of thought that you're throwing out there about, uh, about how governments are really excited about it.
2: Well, they are. And, and they see it as the means of ultimate control because if everything we buy now has to be done through a crypto currency or an exchange of cryptocurrencies. And there is a a central funnel through which they all go, which is where they're headed. Uh, They'll allow, you know, side chains to exist. They'll allow individual private chains to exist. But if you want to buy anything outside of your immediate group, you've got to go through an exchange or a Mm. Index. They have, They're building this index right now. I think it's about done. You know that we ever. If you go on your tax form and you see if you're in business for yourself, and they say here's, go to this manual and put in the six or seven digit number that describes your industry or your profession, and um, the IMF and the World Bank have been working for at least a year, and probably longer, to expand that system so it includes not only your profession. <coughs> But your specific role within a profession. You know, mm-hmm. do you make right hand monkey wrenches or left hand monkey wrenches? And this is a very detailed indexing system so that every transaction, every uh, type of transaction, every item. Every bolt, every thread of every bolt, depending on its length, its material, everything you can conceivably imagine will have a number attached to it and will go through this digital exchange, this digital Mm. index. And if you want to use digital currencies in the real world, you will have to go through that and you'll be happy to do it because it allows you to buy a cup of coffee in Taiwan when you get off the plane, for example. So it'll be wonderful, except that now if you suddenly turn out to be persona non grata with the authorities, they say your, your social score doesn't look too good. You may not even be able to get on that plane to go to Taiwan. Like so you, China. Yeah, like, like China. Mm-hmm. Doing. The, yeah. And, and hey, that, is where, that is yeah. where cryptocurrencies are going to play a major role, I'm afraid. In the show called Let New me do a quick reporting. follow up on that
0: because there are people, especially those of a religious persuasion, that you know believe the end times type of um, terminology that they read in the Old Testament, where there's going to be this mark of the beast, this uh, this mark, whatever it is, that will belong on their forehead or their hand, that without which they will not be able to buy or sell or trade. Uh, and certainly, for those who want to read into that, you could say, "Well, you just
2: chip people and you know put them on the blockchain." Is That's that it? Mm-hmm. Is that Absol- the
0: read that you get of it?
2: Well, absolutely. Uh, I, I don't. I don't like to build my my uh, worldview around the end times because it's so. Uh, it leads to the conclusion that well, it's all over, folks. There's nothing. Yeah, so, what's
0: the uh, point, right? <laughs> what's
2: the point? And I don't believe that for an instant. Uh, I think we've been in the end times for thousands of years. And uh, it's just a question of, you know, we all have our end time coming up pretty soon, probably sooner than when the prophecy might be fulfilled. But anyway, I just, I don't like dwelling on that aspect of it because it it uh, it's self-defeating. And I, I believe, by the way, I this is my personal conviction only. I believe that our enemies are encouraging people to, to uh, become preoccupied with the end times because that takes them right out of the battle. And, uh, if I were on the other side, that's what I would be doing. I would make sure that people are thinking, well, let's just fall on our knees. Let's just get our, our own spirits, our own lives in order with God and everything and, and let it happen. Don't resist it. And boy, I think that would be a huge, huge mistake.
0: Well, but I guess what's, <clears throat> what really is, uh, um... Stands out to me is that if that is indeed the only way for people to buy and sell and and whatever you think of the Bible, here's the story that Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have the mark, you won't. And there will be people who won't take it. And now they're outside the system, Mm -hmm. right, needing an entirely new economy Mm -hmm. in order to survive. And and maybe Mm -hmm. that's a good thing.
2: Well, maybe it is, but my, my view on that is that I would rather just uh, change the system or prevent that system from happening instead of exactly. trying to figure out how to get along with it and how to survive in mm-hmm. spite of it. How about facing it down and making a statement that no, no, this is not what we're going to allow to happen. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a difference in approach. Well, I
1: want I want to talk about that because it seems like a pretty good segue into – uh, in 1984, you had an interview with Yuri Bezmenov, and uh, it was a really interesting one. I think that it's popped up multiple times over the years, and then over the last year or so, you re-edited it with, with much better footage. So I saw like the the old cruddy footage, but now there's, there's much better footage out there. And what was really interesting is they talked about how the Russians in the 1960s started this ideological subversion of America through the educational system and through some other systems where they begin to demoralize the U.S., then destabilize the U.S., then there's the crisis phase, and then they go into the normalization phase. And, if, and, and according to that video that you did a year ago, that we're in that crisis phase right now because the the, the, the com- communists have infiltrated all of these different industries and all these different areas that impact the minds of the last three generations Uh, their plan was let's subvert the minds of the next three generations and that can glean them over to communism where are we now and how are you seeing this play out from that interview you know 30
2: years ago with this dude well i think your analysis is right on on target yeah according to yuri's um, proposal and i he should know i mean he was a kgb agent he was a defector from the soviet union he was in charge of um, disinformation uh, for the American press or any, any press that came to Russia, his job was as I'm just doing this, not for your benefit, but for viewers, uh, his job was to take the newspaper reporters and journalists around, get them drunk, show them the good things that that they had created uh, in Moscow as a show show place and make them believe that that's the way it was all around Russia. It was a kind of a show. It was, to give you an example, they, they staged a wedding uh, in a in a uh, Christian church uh, so that the newspaper reporters could say, oh, my gosh, we were told that that uh, Russia didn't allow weddings anymore in churches. But look, here's one. And they're there. They are, they're getting married. And there's a group there. They're drinking champagne. And they're dancing and their music. And they were invited to join the crowd. And they go back and they write about that. And, of course, Yuri says, that was our stage show. Is it, we, that That guy and that girl got married about three times a week. In fact, they were complaining because they didn't, they wanted some time off. They didn't want to get married today. We're
1: tired of getting married every day. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? We I want a it. divorce finally. Yeah. Of-
2: <laughs> yeah. we, we laugh at it now, but you know, this is the way the world works. Even today, a lot of what we say in the news and so forth, it's, it, you're talking about fake news. That's about it. So anyway, uh, that was Yuri's story. He should know. And, and, um, He said, yes, you go through these stages that you mentioned. And the second to the last one was crisis. And of course, then the crisis justifies bringing in uh, harsh um, controls to put down the crisis. In other words, we would call it martial law. And everybody is so, oh, thank God we've got martial law to get rid of all this violence in the streets and get rid of all of these crazies out there. Thank you. Thank you for martial law. And then that's the end of it because the Marshall never leaves. It just becomes normalized. And they call that normalization to get, to get rid of the, uh, the chaos and make people grateful for it. Now that's, of course, when you, you stand back and look at what's happening, not just in America, but around the world, look at Europe as well. This is the strategy that's been going on for decades to create chaos, to create uh, violence in the streets to divide people against each other hatred uh, animosity conflict and then everybody is say oh my gosh here in the United States with is is this, this going to break out into race war that's what they want they want race war they, they want they have these these actors of all colors by the way white and black and brown they're actors they're on the payroll people like George Soros they're they're actors they go in front of the cameras and they break windows, and they shout obscenities. And even in Congress, we've got actors who are trying to to, uh, create chaos by demanding the impeachment of the president. It's all acting, and it's all to divide people against each other and to hate each other, so that when the violence finally erupts on the streets, that's their goal, they can bring in martial law and say, we are going to restore you. We are going to Protect you, right? We're going to normalize it. That's going to use the same word. I guarantee mm. you the same word. We're going to bring back normalcy. Mm. and
1: So that becomes a totalitarian authority, you know, sort of this authoritarian dystopia thing.
2: With technology
1: exactly. powering it.
2: With the technology powering it, powering it, and also making it more efficient and making it more difficult to escape. Yes.
0: Wow. You are a veritable wealth of information. And and I want to respect your time because you've always been gracious or ready to give us an hour. But I wonder if we can close with a quick speed round because you have written about so many topics um, rather than uh, go in depth, maybe just 15 to 30 seconds on just a summary. When I when I spit this out at you, you've covered the topic of cancer. What is the conclusion? What do we need to know? (laughs)
2: I love this. Uh, Well, I can, it'll take me a little bit longer this time around than just saying it's a scam. (laughs) (laughs) But okay, cancer. Uh, How do I reduce this to its essence? Um, My, my conclusion after doing quite a bit of research on it and leading up to the publication of my book called World Without Cancer, the story of vitamin B17, is that cancer is a natural Um, process in the body that's gone out of control. It's not a disease. It's not caused by bacteria or a virus or something like that. It's a natural, it's the healing process in essence. It's the healing process whereby when cells are damaged, the body kicks in and starts to create new cells to replace it. And when the new cells have replaced it, well then there's a signal, electrical and chemical signals that go into play and say, okay, you can stop now. And you're fine. You've replaced skin. Every seven years on average, we've replaced almost all of our cells in our body through this mechanism. It's a healing and growth mechanism. When that gets out of control or out of rise, something goes wrong with it. Now these cells don't stop healing. They overheal and they overheal. And we generally call that a cancerous tumor. Something has gone too far. That's an oversimplification of how I conclude the cancer should be viewed as a, a violation of a natural process. I the guess con-
0: my question there, Ed, is yeah, more towards the conspiracy angle: is do we, do the powers that be, have a cure and it's not being released because? Well,
2: l- the I, let me get is. to that because first of all, I've got to say that therefore the the control for cancer or the solution to cancer is not to remove the the tumor. Because the tumor is really the symptom. Orthodox medicine looks at the tumor like, ah, the cancer, look, let's cut it out. Let's burn it out. Let's poison it out. We get rid of the tumor. Ah, madam, the cancer is gone. And that's not true. That's why we have such a problem. They treat the cancer tumor as the cancer when it's only the symptom. And our job, I think our job, our alternative doctors that are pursuing this theory feel that we have to find out what went wrong with the normal body mechanism that allows the tumor to grow and treat the patient at that level. And then the tumor will go away or that it could remove it then possibly, but the condition that caused it is gone. Now, if that's the case, then uh, what are the pharmaceutical companies which dominate the med- medical profession? What are they doing? Are they looking for a cure? The answer is no, and people from whistleblowers in particular would tell you, no, that's not the goal of the pharmaceutical company, nor would it be yours, possibly, if you were the president of some large pharmaceutical company. Your job as president of the company is to produce income for the company. Now, if you came up with a cure, especially a cheap cure, what happens to your company? Your company goes broke, and you're fired, man. You're out of there. And so the whistleblowers have come out and they said, look, the model, the modern model of healthcare as determined by the pharmaceutical industry is not to cure anything, but to control it, to maintain it, to maintain it so that you can work and live and just keep alive only if you continue taking that pill every day for the rest of your life in order to maintain your, your ability to survive the cancer. But if you never cure it because then you're out of business. So, that is, in a nutshell, what we are facing, and why cancer is not being cured. That's why the rate of cancer keeps going up year after year, even though the amount of money spent on research is astronomical. Those
1: who B seventeen B seventeen has something to do with helping keep you healthy.
2: Yes, it does. It B seventeen is is a part of the food chain that primitive peoples and even uh not primitive peoples normally would get in their food it's only when you get into really hyper modern societies where the food supply is so controlled and so processed that some of these substances are eliminated or killed right out of it and that amygdalin of this p17 is one of those things it's a substance that's ubiquitous in nature it's in 1400 edible plants hmm. but people don't eat them if they have any choice because they're bitter if you eat an apple seed and taste the taste of an apple seed, it's bitter as all get out. But that's the taste that you're looking for. If you eat an apricot seed and chew it, bitter. Oh, who would eat that stuff? But that's the taste. It's it's in grasses. You know, animals that are, have sort of a instinctive taste feeling for how to keep themselves well. You look at a sick dog or cat, what do they do? They start eating grass, don't they? Not just any grass, but the broad leaf grasses, the tunis grass, the arrow grass, the things like that. They're rich in vitamin B17, but they're bitter. You don't want to make a soup out of grass. It's bitter. And so modern societies that have the abundance to choose their foods, and they get all these sugary foods and processed foods, they don't have that bitter taste, but they also don't have amygdala. And the degree to which the diet is deficient in amygdalin is a direct proportion to the degree of cancer. And that's just a statistical fact. Now you can take it from there. Take it from there and run with it. Let's talk about bitter coin. <laughs> we'll <talk about> <laughs> bad bitcoin. I, huh? <laughs> I should have known when i
0: you know in speaking to somebody who is so well studied and researched to give me a quick answer that you can't i mean there's so much information i, I want to ask about one more thing well then... uh,
2: excuse me I, I suppose if i went back and tried to summarize what i just said i would say the answer to cancer is found in nature
0: yeah uh, but that that's great. So the one other thing you have written on your books is the historical authenticity of what many believe is a fable. That's Noah's Ark. What were your conclusions?
2: Okay. That's, yeah, that's a little bit out of the political realm, isn't it? But yeah, my conclusion is that Noah's Ark was real. It's uh, it's in Turkey. It's not on Mount Ararat, like they all say. It's, if you go to the Bible and look at the exact translation, it says that Noah's Ark landed in, it does not say landed on Mount Ararat. It says it landed in the mountains, plural, of Ararat. Ararat was the kingdom of Araratu. It was a big kingdom. And Mount Ararat, which wasn't named that at the time, was just one of the many mountains in that kingdom. So the Bible doesn't say it was on Mount Ararat, it's that it was in one of those mountains. And sure enough, the, the fossil that um, uh, was found by the people that, that I was relying on for our research is about, um, I think it's about 17 miles away from Mount Ararat. Now, up on the mountain, you can find these big uh, load stones, big, huge, monstrous stones. They're anchor stones. And you know they're anchor stones because they have holes in the top of them where the rope went through. And they're just sort of scattered up the mountain. You could tell as the water came down, these anchor stones, which were dragging behind the ship to keep it, always, well, they used rogue stones on the Nile, and they used to anyway, to steer the ships. They were drag stones. They put them off the back of the ship. And as the current took the ship down, if they wanted to steer it, they would move the, the, the stone from one side to the other and put the drag on left or right, and that mm-hmm. would steer the ship. And mm-hmm. they used them also in open seas because when the wind blows, the wind will always blow the ship in a 90 degrees to the wind and the stone, the stone would keep it at 90 degrees instead of going broadside to the wind, in which case it would capsize. So these, these drogue stones are all the way up the hill, and you get down to the bottom of the hill, and there is this monstrous fossil, and it's boat-shaped. It's exactly the length that they talk about Noah's Ark being. It has, it has um, relics in it. They did sound surveys and, and sonar surveys. They found structures underneath it, and it's all there. And it's, all, wow. it's not wood anymore. In fact, it was there was very little of it. It was wood. It was mostly reed, made of reeds, not wood. But there it is.
0: It's funny. Just as you were saying that, I did. I looked on DuckDuckGo, and the article that came up from last year uh, on AncientOrigins.net evidence that Noah's Ark landed on a mountain seventeen miles south of Ararat, and it's got these pictures, and that that's mm -hmm. just mind blowing to
2: me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's my conclusion. I think that's the real thing. Uh, I know this. If that wasn't Noah's Ark. It was somebody's ark, and it's up to somebody else. And until we dig up a brass plaque that says built by Noah and sons, then we, we don't know that it's Noah's ark. It, <laughs> it was somebody's ark. Wow. Well, this has been
0: absolutely fantastic. Um, I, I, just, I hesitate to, to call you Ed. I want to call you Mr. Griffin. Just <laughs> out of, a respect for the body of work that you've created. You've got a website called Red Pill University. .org. You've got freedomforceinternational.org. Is there somewhere that you would like to direct people, you know, for a quick introduction to, you know, who you are and what you do beyond this interview?
2: Well, yes, I. but even on top of that, I would like to uh, take advantage of the moment and what's happening on the calendar and ask people to come to redpillexpo.org, redpillexpo.org, because we've just decided that our next expo, will be held on Jekyll Island. Oh. <laughs> yes. How oh, perfect. And so nice. we've been talking about that. <clears throat> so if anybody's interested in this topic, there'll be many other topics. The expo is not single topic at all, but it's two days of red pills on things like we're talking about. And so you'll get the information there at Red Pill Expo. Dot org. June fifth and
0: sixth, twenty twenty, Jekyll Island, Georgia. What a great place to hold an event! Kind of bring full circle. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah that is re-
2: good. Returning to the scene of the crime.
1: Yeah, that is great. I was actually chatting with Chris Snook today, and he wanted me to ask you one quick question. He has this uh, project called Wealth Matters, and he was really curious about these negative rate policy that's happening by these other these central banks and the imminent path to zero interest rate and even maybe negative interest rate and 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 they said that yesterday they held that off until 2020 so now we're at 2% they're not raising the interest rate currently but they think that it's gonna, they're going to they're going to drop it eventually into these negative rates like what's what's the key i would guess i would i just ask this before we go what's the key indicator for you that oh, the dominoes are falling now and uh oh, we're going this fiat currency system's gonna go away. The the crisis is here. What what what's that? What's that tipping point? And does negative interest rates have anything to do with that?
2: Well, negative interest rates do have a lot to do with that, but I don't think they're ready for negative interest rates until they have cryptocurrencies, because that's uh, just think about it. A negative interest rate means that they're taking money out of your account. You put money into Mm -hmm. the account. Instead of paying you interest, they take money out of your account, and they call that negative interest rate instead of theft. They should have just called it theft. But they call it negative interest rate. So if they start doing that, people are going to take their money out of the banks, aren't they? But what if they can't take their money out of the banks because there is no money to take out of the banks? What if it's all digital? Now you can't take it out. Now they can do negative interest rates, and you can't do anything about it. So I don't expect negative interest rates to happen until cryptos are firmly at, at play in the banking system. And that's, uh, that's just an opinion. I, who knows what they'll try to do. As long as people can take their money out of the banking system, it's going to be hard, hard to enforce negative interest rates. Now, what's the key to what's happening? I'm not very good at, at this because I've always thought the thing was going to blow up. <laughs> First when I started learning about it really back in the seventies, I thought, oh, this isn't gonna last very long. And it's amazing. It just keeps going. But I had I It's have- hurt
1: me with investments over the years too. Like I didn't try like I, I didn't trust the stock boom in the stock market because this is all fake money now. I'm like well, yeah. it's gonna pop at any time. Yeah.
2: And I think you're right, at any time, but we just don't know what time. But I will say this if you look around the world, what do you find? All of the central banks at the same time now are massively inflating the money supply, all together. And it's like, how can this be? What do they think is gonna happen out of this? And I have a feeling that they think that the game is coming to an end and they're gonna plunder it as much as they can in the last few months before it pops. That's what I suspect, but as I said earlier, I've thought this before, so don't go rushing around acting on that, but that's my honest suspicion. I won't say opinion, but it's my suspicion that it's getting very, very close right now.
0: Maybe the sky is falling. Maybe it's not. I Maybe know, it's but not. <laughs> it's interesting to prognosticate. Uh, G. Edward yeah. Griffin, thank you so much again today for uh, for sharing with us. Uh, I, I have a feeling we could go on for hours because you just know so much, but we would encourage you guys to go to the show notes for today's episode. Check out all the links there. Grab a copy of The Creature from Jekyll Island, and if you want to be truly red-pilled, check out the upcoming conference June of next year, the redpillexpo.org on Jekyll Island. Thanks again, Ed.
2: Appreciate it. Thank you guys. And good luck on all your endeavors and keep telling the truth.
0: Well, there you guys go. That is a lot to digest. Uh, We really encourage you to go to the show notes. There's a lot of links here that you're going to want to check out. Of course, there's uh, G. Edward Griffin's Red Pill University. There's this Wikipedia page. There's Freedom Force International. There's the Red Pill Expo that's coming up next June. There's uh, information about Jekyll Island, the interview with Yuri Bezmenov that Travis referred to, and the discussion we had about Noah's Ark is in there as well, go to the show notes at badcode.in forward slash 351. And you know, if you've been looking for an opportunity to share bad crypto with somebody, wow, this episode is the one, gang. In fact, let's go ahead and mobilize. This is a great New Year's present for everybody to start 2020, to have a friend, a family member, a business associate understand how money works in these United States of America, and by virtue of that, all over the world, right? Because this, the Fed impacts the entire world, actually, in the global economies. So, just share this link with them, or get their phone from them and say, uh, "Let me, let me see your phone." Hey, Travis, can I see your phone a second? No, give me, give me your phone. Yep, look, there's Godzilla, and then grab his oh. phone while he's not looking. and just open up the podcast player search bad crypto subscribe them boom that's it easy peasy lemon squeezy and now they're listening to all the g edward griffin goodness
1: yeah or just say hey listen to this listen to this Interview with G. Edward Griffin by these guys at bad crypto. And then when you're done, subscribe. You don't have to you don't have to take their phone and do that, but that's no, take it's it. pretty funny to do. It's pretty funny do it. to do. do. Do it. Do it Mr. Joel com says. It's
0: do it. Do it. And then go check out our other sponsor, Moby Pay. Mr. Travis Wright, what are they all about?
1: Moby Pay is all about making crypto and regular transactions easy, right? So money has existed throughout the years, right? You've had these these shells way back in the day and precious metals. Well, now payments are going mobile, and that's why MobiPay ecosystem has these three core applications that's going to allow people to send money and digital cryptos all over the world, all across their mobile phone. It has a really cool and easy to use mobile wallet, which I love. I mean, literally, you can send moby to just somebody's phone number which is pretty handy and it goes into their wallet that's attached you're going to want to check it out it's mobipay.io they got some big things that's going to be announced in the new year you guys are going to want to hear about it it's good stuff go check it out mobipay m-o-b-i-e pay.io mm. yes sir mr travis wright guess what this is our last episode for 2019 i would say that we popped off 2019 with the bang with with g edward huh
0: Mm-hmm. and of course uh episodes for 2020 are right around the corner since it's New Year's week we've only got two episodes for you coming next week we're taking a break here over New Year's Eve and New Year's Day but we'll be back with another show on the 2nd of January in the year bad of-
1: news I have some bad news that there's no bad news this week
0: there's no bad news it's going to be uh, a great interview uh is coming up with Andy Bromberg and Christina Lamazzo. you're like who are they oh you're going to find out and trust us it's going to be really really good stuff so we'll catch you guys
1: well not only that right after that we have ricardo Spagni, fluffy pony of monero on the show yeah Yeah. and then later on we got john kim of the litecoin foundation we've got uh uh, elise sam coming on we have some other really amazing stuff as well you're gonna want to tune in we got some oh and we got a great interview with ben swan that uh, we're going to be talking about as well later down the road. So we got some great content lined up for you, folks. 2020 is going to be amazing.
0: It is. And we're going to provide you with the best information and entertainment, infotainment, cryptotainment, if you will, to help you to make 2020 the year that you are the bestest at staying back.
1: Who's back?